If you would open your Bible up to Daniel chapter 7, I'll preach a message out of Daniel today, and the title of the message is Our God Reigns. Daniel 7, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And I beheld another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs and the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. And I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And Father, I ask today for all of us here, Lord, that you'll bless your word to our hearts and that you'll open our eyes and to see that you indeed reign above all the kingdoms of this earth and that we can trust you for that. And that's my prayer and our prayer today in Jesus' name. So, in light of the inauguration of President Trump, you know, which has a lot of people in the United States pretty upset. I mean, we got people, there, big movements calling him illegitimate, calling him Hitler, other names. Anti-Trump marches are going on everywhere. And so, for some people in this world, and we're not into politics here per se, but for some people, it's the end. But I'll say this, so our country with the new president is definitely going to be heading in a different direction for the next four years than it has for the previous eight years. And so some people, they are truly scared of the future. 
Christians and non-Christians both don't know what to expect. So what should we make of all of this as Christians? Should this be a cause for alarm for us? What's taken place? So we've talked about this some. I don't want to belabor this, but in case you haven't noticed, you know, there's a darkness and an anti-Christian spirit that is just coming on more than it ever has. It's always been in this world. But it's coming on the nations of the earth, and it's kind of like a solar eclipse. It's just gradually happening, but you definitely see the darkening effects that are taking place. It's slow but perceptive. Everything about this world that's become an anti-Christian, but you know, the same-sex marriages, which has never happened before in the history of this world, legalized same-sex homosexual marriages, never before in the history of this world. It's happened, but not been legalized, not even Rome who had a lot of practicing homosexuals, it was never legal there, recognized by the government. We got legalized marijuana in America now that is a spreading movement. Of course, the abortion. And then this growing influence of Islam, it is like a cancer that is spreading everywhere in the world and even here in America. And declining church attendance, the numbers are progressively getting worse and worse in America, the number of people going to church. And in Europe, it's really bad. And there's also this unrelenting persecution of Christians that's going on in much of the world. Now, we're spared that right here now. We're not experiencing it. But I think changes are on the way at some point coming to us. And so chapter 7 of Daniel, I believe, has got the key to tell us how we should be viewing these world governments and this quickly changing world environment, because it is. It's changing very quickly. I want to just talk briefly about the context of Daniel chapter 7. The Jews have been taken captive because of their sins into Babylon as a punishment. And so the first six chapters of the book of Daniel tells us there's hardly any godly Jews in exile. And it speaks then about Daniel and his three friends, the three Hebrew boys, and how they are able to cope, how God enables them to cope in a hostile environment. Because Babylon was not favorable to them. And that's what we see. They're constantly being tested there, aren't they? That's what we read in those first six chapters. It's narrative. It's story. Because starting here in chapter 7, we're getting into visions and dreams and apocalyptic literature, end-time visions and dreams. The first six chapters, it's narratives. It's stories. In chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends, they all determine in their hearts they will not drink of the king's meat and of his wine. They do that. They're being tested in that way. In chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're told if you don't bow down to the golden image when the band plays, it's curtains for you all. And they refuse to do that. And up in chapter 6, Daniel, his enemies, people in the government, out to hang him. They knew he prayed three times a day, so they set him up. They had the king issue a decree that anyone that made a request other than the king would be thrown into a lion's den. And Daniel's like, I'm not bowing my knee to that. And that's what we have. Pressure to conform to a society. And that's what's taking place today in our society and around the world. And, you know, it's a lot of pressure to do that. Pressure to deny the Lord. For those three boys and Daniel, that had to be tremendous pressure. They're young men at that time. And a young man, to stand up to pressure like that, it takes the grace of God, right? And a determination, purpose in their heart, what they would do, that they would serve the Lord. And they remained faithful. So there's lessons for all of us there in those first six chapters of Daniel on how to remain faithful to God when your environment is hostile. Because it will be if you're a true Christian. 
if you're at school, if you're at work, when you're around relatives, and some of us here have had to deal with the government officials that are hostile to your Christian beliefs. And you can get that out of the first six chapters of Daniel. So I'm sure they had to deal with being shunned and isolated and lonely. You know, up to this point in chapter 7 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar loved Daniel, promoted him up. He was his buddy. (laughs) He, in a sense, had a conversion experience where he actually became converted. But he had this big experience during his life. And then Daniel comes in with a new king that Daniel's a nobody. Knows nothing about him. And he's an old man by the time this chapter 7 is being written. Well, in his 40s or his 50s, I don't know how old you would consider that to be. But he had to be asking himself, those guys were over there in exile. They had to be asking themselves, when will this end for us? When will it end? And is it worth it? Is there really any point to remaining faithful to God? They had to be asking them those questions. And will this darkness just keep prevailing over God's people? So chapter 7, I believe, is God's answer to them, and it's his answer to us. And it is this, that it is worth it. It is worth it to remain faithful because God is on his throne. And his kingdom, we read, will never be destroyed. It'll never be destroyed despite what circumstances seem to say. And we need to remember that in these days ahead. You know, Augustine wrote this book, The City of God. And then then he talks about the city of man and the city of God. The city of man with his governments, this world, this world structure. And when it seems to tower above the city of God, we need to remember that God is still in control. That our God still reigns. There's a lot of people in this world that are suffering today and it seems like The kingdom of God is not the dominating kingdom in their life. It's the kingdom of man. There's a lot of suffering going on. So Daniel 7 here, what he's doing here, and especially in these first eight verses through these visions, is he's given us a broad view of world history from the time of Daniel clear to the end of the age, up to our present age. That's what we have here. And what is that message? What's the message of Daniel 7? It's not that these world powers are going to conquer, but it's that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. That's the message. And so what we're going to see here today from Daniel 7, we've got three points. And the first one is that nations rise and fall under the sovereign control of God. And the second thing we're going to see is that it may appear God's people are part of a losing cause. It may appear that way. And the third thing is God's kingdom has begun and it will triumph in the end. And so the first thing, nations will rise and fall, but they are under the sovereign control of God. So we begin there in verse 1. Daniel has this vision at night, which he writes down. And the first thing he sees there in verse 2 is what? He says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, it says, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. So he sees this sea in this vision being stirred up by these winds of heaven. And the sea symbolically in the Bible always represents mankind, but not just Mankind in a righteous state, but wicked mankind. That's what the sea always symbolizes. Isaiah 57, 20 says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. 
And so the four winds, they come from heaven. And it's saying they are stirring up that sea. Mankind, humanity, stirring them up. He's churning up wicked men. And from that comes these kings and these kingdoms from wicked humanity. And they're going to rule in their own wisdom. And they're going to exploit men in their own strength. That's what happened. But the point of this is, the point of what I'm trying to say is, the winds come from heaven to stir these waters, to bring up these beasts that we read about. God is in control of it all. He's the source of the chaos that causes nations to rise and fall. Daniel 2, 20 to 21 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. And listen to this. It says, he removes kings and he sets up kings. And he does it here by he stirs the waters, causes all the events that have to take place in this world for one kingdom to rise and one kingdom to fall. That's what we're reading here. And so verse 3 tells us that what comes up out of this sea through this stirring are four great beasts. It says in verse 3, four great beasts came up from the sea and they're different from each other. And so these beasts, what do they represent? They represent kings and empires. And we know that if you'll just look down at verse 17, when this dream's being interpreted, it says here, verse 7, 17, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. So that's who these beasts are. And the first beast in verse 4, it says it's a combination. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. It's a lion and an eagle combined. And what is that nation that's represented there? It's Babylon. And the monuments and statues of Babylon that have been dug up, they always represent it as a lion and has wings. Jeremiah talked about Babylon as both a lion and an eagle. And so that lion depicts its ferocity in conquering. And the wings talk about its strength and its power. But Daniel says, if you read that verse, it says that those wings were plucked. And then it was made to stand up and it became like a man. What is he talking about there? Well, if you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on. But he rose up in his pride and what happened? God plucked his wings, so to speak, didn't he? And made him like an animal. And from there on out, it was a different story. And that's what it's talking about there. The second beast in verse 5, it says, is a bear. Behold, another beast, a second, likened to a bear. And the Syrian bears were huge. They were very big bears, which would have been what would have come to mind. And we know that this bear wasn't fasting. You know why? Because when you read it, it says it's got three ribs hanging out of its mouth. He wasn't fasting, right? So that bear represents Medo-Persia another world power that came on the scene. And so the bear is big. Medo-Persia was big, and it had a voracious appetite for devouring other nations. And so the three ribs probably represent Babylon, Lydda, and Egypt, three great empires that Medo-Persia conquered. And then it moves on to the third beast, and that is verse 6, And after this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard. So the third beast is a leopard, and this is talking about Greece. So people hate history. It's isn't going to take that long. But actually, it's pretty interesting if you actually ever studied it. So leopards were what? You think about a leopard. They are a very swift animal, and they are very deadly. And that's the way Alexander, who headed up Greece, 
ferociously and swiftly conquered the world. As a young man in 10 years, by the age of 32, he had conquered all of the known world at the time. Gets up to India, doesn't have anything else to conquer. The story goes that he wept, that he had nothing else to conquer, that he died as a young man. And I believe those four heads represent his kingdom that was divided up amongst his four generals. And those four wings on there, that speaks about how swift he managed to conquer the world. Two more than that were on the lion. And we move on to verses 7 and 8, and it talks about a fourth beast. And interesting enough, this fourth beast has no animal to represent it. It doesn't have an animal. It's so incredible that it said it's different than the other three. can't even be compared. So it says in verse 3 they were all different. But this fourth beast is in a class by itself. Ferocious, devouring, terrifying. More than the other ones. And it says that that beast covers the entire earth. Verse 19 speaks about its ferocity. Verse 19, then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. Merciless. Now that speaks of Rome at the time, but that beast is going to be manifested again here in these last days. It is not done. And look over in verse 23, and it says, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms. And here, look how widespread, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and shall break it in pieces. So listen, when you have these animals, all of them are ferocious I've stood next to a lion in the zoo at San Diego. I'm saying, you see them on TV. They don't do much to you. When you get next to one of those guys and you hear them roar, they will make your hair stand on end. And that's what God, through Daniel and writing this, is trying to do. He's trying to strike terror in the readers by the images that are created here. And these kingdoms that conquered, these kings and kingdoms, they were a terror to the people that they conquered. Just read history about what happened. And so the history is shown that is the pattern of world rulers. They're wicked. They're aggressive. They conquer. They're insatiable because it's the sea. The sea of the wicked are where these rulers come from. And the beast, all of them, like I said, they're violent and aggressive. It's the way the world is ruled. And here's the thing. This is going to the end. It will always be that way. To think we're going to have some kind of world peace, United Nations, it's never going to happen. Because the Bible's true. As my little boy John says, I know it's true, Dad, because it's in the Bible. It doesn't matter what's in there. Well, that's the truth. It is. And the Bible says we are going to have this up until the end, when the Lord comes back, till Jesus comes back. And so who is the God of this world? Who's putting these people in place, right? It's the devil. And his evil spirits are behind how this world operates and the rulers operate. We talked about that, Ephesians 6, 12, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So there have been many ferocious, wicked rulers throughout history. And I'd say that's the nature of the beast. No pun intended. That's what they're talking about here. And nations have been, all through history, depicted as predatory animals. 
I mean, what's the symbol of America? An eagle. Now, if Benjamin Franklin would have had his way, you know what we would have been? A turkey. That would have been real good. That would look good on the presidential seal, wouldn't it? But we got an eagle here. And Russia is known as what? The bear. And it's had some bear of leaders there. Pretty ferocious. I mean, Joseph Stalin was not exactly a nice guy. He was just like that Medo-Persian bear. Ruthless. You know, in 1932, to give you an example, he demanded from these Ukrainian peasants, he said, you're going to supply me with more grain than you actually produce. And he did not let up on his demand, which meant what? He took all of these people's grain, everything they had, and literally they estimate between five and seven million peasants starved because of that ruler. And that's why these kingdoms are depicted that the way they are. But here's what we need to remember. All of them have been under, and we'll go back and look at this, all of them have been under the sovereign control of God. So Satan can only control and influence, we know this, as much as God allows and permits, right? So Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that lesson the hard way. So we're here in chapter 7. If you would just turn back a few chapters to chapter 4, Now we'll start verse 28. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. And the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Hmm. And while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, You got it all wrong, my friend. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until you know that the Most High, he's the one that rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. That's where it's at, isn't it? So we see there, God has told Nebuchadnezzar, we clearly see this first beast was totally under God's control. Amen? We can see that. If you go back to chapter 7, the second beast is what? At the end of verse 5, this bear. At the end of verse 5, it says, And it was said unto him, Arise, devour much flesh. In other words, it was a command. He couldn't just do that on his own. Medo-Persia, that empire. It had to be granted by God for that to happen. He has his purposes and all of that happening. And the third beast, Alexander the Great, was not really as great as either he or the historians thought he was. You know why? Because look at the end of verse 6. It talks about the back of the four wings of a fowl. And it said the beast had four heads. But look at the very end of verse 6, speaking of the leopard and Greece and Alexander. It says dominion was what? It was given. That's the way it is. Now, the world doesn't understand that. We need to understand that, though. There is no power, no government, none. Not even the mayor of Shelbyville is there because he wants to be there. He may want to be there, but God is in control. If God didn't want in there, he would not be there. And if it wasn't in God's interest, he wouldn't be there. That's the same with our current president, our past president, any president that we have ever had. So none of the kingdoms of men have ever been outside of the control of our sovereign God. 
Amen. Pilate said this to Jesus. You'll know this. He says, know you not that I have power to crucify you and I have power to release you? And who did he represent? The great Roman Empire. The fourth beast. He had power. Oh, no. But did he really? And Jesus' answer was what? He says, you could have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. <laughs> That's a little comforting to know, isn't it? There's nothing can happen to any of us by a government or anyone else that God doesn't allow. That's what Jesus was telling Pilate. God didn't allow you to do this. You couldn't do this no matter how bad you wanted to. Amen. So for good or evil, as we just said, no ruler can do a single thing unless God allows it because Hitler had great plans, didn't he? Along with Japan and Italy. But none of it, it all came to nothing. None of it happened. They were only allowed to conquer, kill, and spoil as much as God determined that they could. And then it stopped. It did. Now we're back to, there are also the means that God uses to bring that. Because there were a lot of people praying. A lot of people praying in England. Christians all over this world praying against what happened. And I think those prayers were effective. Our current president, I wasn't going to watch any of the inauguration stuff. I'm waiting for my daughter to bring me lunch home, and I got hooked. So I heard the last part of the speech and saw some other things going on. Let me just say this respectfully. So President Trump made some great boast of what will happen in the future of this country. He talked about our economy, how great it was going to be, our military, our jobs, our inner cities, our roads and bridges. And I'm saying not a thing of that will happen unless God wants it to happen. Amen. Not any of it. Because none of that power is in the hands of our leaders, but solely in the hands of God. Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed, is not this great Babylon that I Sound familiar? That I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power, he said, and for the honor of my majesty. And God said, that is the wrong answer, Nebuchadnezzar, because he said the most high rules in the kingdom of men. Amen. And we need to remember that. When the forces of darkness, and they are, they're coming more and more on this world. I, you feel more and more like you're in the minority of people that truly want to walk with God and believe the Bible. I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about Christians that are sold out to the Lord wherever they are. They've got to be feeling that way. Because we just read it. There's going to come a time when the forces of darkness are totally dominating that fourth beast, that little horn, totally dominating the entire earth. That's ultimately what's going to happen for a time. Let me add. So that brings me to the second thing I want to say. For a time, it may appear that God's people are part of a losing cause. So that fourth beast, it said it's dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. It has ten horns. The horns in the Bible always speak of power. And this beast has ten of them. You know, your typical animal has two. Five times that. That's what it's trying to depict. There is a lot of power in this empire, in this kingdom. And up from those ten horns comes this little horn, 
which becomes greater than any of the ten. And he's described as a man. Look in verse 8. It says this, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And look what it says at the end. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man. And he had a mouth speaking great thing. Yeah, we know who this is. He is a man that is indwelt by the devil with his power and authority, the Antichrist. And he hates God's people because he hates God. He's cast out of heaven, can't get to him anymore. He's going after his people, hates us. That's who he's talking about here. So look at verses 20 and 21. Not only makes war with the saints, but it says he'll prevail. In verse 20 it says, And the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, better than any of them, whose look was more stout than his fellows. In verse 21, and he says, And I beheld the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them. It's going to look like he has got the upper hand and God just doesn't care. So I'm saying for a time, it's going to appear that God's people are part of a losing cause. Going to cause many to fall away, right? What is he saying there? The people of God at that time, during that little horn's reign, are going to literally be like lambs led to the slaughter. What a test. What a test that's going to be. And look at verses 24 and 25. And it says this, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And look at verse 25. And he'll speak great words against the Most High, and he will wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until at times, times, and the dividing of times. It's saying he is going to speak great blasphemies freely against God, and it says he is going to wear out the saints. Wear them out. Harass them. Oppress them. Continually coming after them. And it says God gave him the power to do that. He's not stopping him. Unrelenting. So if you would put something there and turn back to the book of Revelation, Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1, Revelation 13, 1, and John writes, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, his feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and his authority. So the Antichrist power comes directly from the devil. Verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. 
verse 7, and it was given. It continually says that. Given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Who's given him all this power and authority? God is in control. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear to hear, let him hear. See, that's something he gave God Almighty. Our Father gave this beast the right to do what he speak blasphemies against him, to wear out the saints and overcome them. The same thing is said in Daniel 7.25. The same thing is said here. And so it would appear at this point in history, right, that God's people are on the losing team. That's the way it would look, right? Everybody's going to be worshiping that beast. All of them that dwell on the earth except for just a few, the elect. It says the days had to get cut short or they would have been caught up into all this. Couldn't have endured anymore. Look at verse 14 down there. And he deceives this beast, them that dwell on the earth. And how's he doing it? You want to follow signs and wonders for the sake of signs and wonders? Look what it says. By the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image in the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. The beast is prophet performing signs, wonders, miracles, and the earth is wondering after that. Who wouldn't want to follow somebody like that? That is generally what happens. You start doing signs, wonders, miracles, and people, the message all of a sudden isn't so important. Well, here I can get my help. I can get what I need. Oh, something exciting is happening here. Right? And that's the danger of all that. The deceivableness of unrighteousness. And so that is why we've said before, Second Thessalonians say, we had better love the truth. And righteousness, that's our only safeguard against all this that's coming. This delusion, this deception that's coming on the earth. Because I'm going to tell you at this point, there's not going to be missions going out from churches. There won't be churches to meet at at this point. It'll be illegal like it is in China now. If you're able to meet, you're going to be catching a meeting real quick with somebody. It's going to be the climax of this ongoing war of the ages between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. That's what we're seeing taking place, and that's what we're coming into. This Antichrist, this horn, will be the personification of evil, blasphemy, pride, and persecution of God's people. And so you're sitting there thinking, man, I'm glad I won't be around to see all that because I'm going to be raptured. I won't be around for that, right? Well, let me tell you this. Tell that to the hundreds of thousands of Christians that are being persecuted today as we sit here in our comfortable, nicely conditioned room with a meal to look forward to. It's not that way everywhere on this earth. If you lived in North Korea and you became a Christian, guess what? For 14 years, they've been numero uno on the worst place for a Christian to live. 70,000 today, 70,000 Christians are being held in prison camps just because they're Christians. 70,000. How would you like to be one of those? They didn't ask to be born in Korea no more than we asked to be born here. You like the house you're living in? 7.6 million Christians in Syria have been displaced from their homes ever since this ISIS conflict has come up. 
7.6 million Christians without homes. That's going on all over the place too. In Algeria, if you're a woman and your Muslim family learns that you're a Christian, you will be made a prisoner in your own house. I got all this from World Watch. I got this big map that shows you where to pray for all the persecuted people and the Christian, and they have all these little fun facts on there. They're not really too fun facts. And I'm saying this darkness that's coming over the world, they did a survey in England, and less than a third of the people there between the ages of 18 and 24, less than a third believe Britain is a Christian country. Darkness is settling over the land, and it's moving this way. It's settling over America. More and more dark in America. I've seen the statistics. It's surprising how few people now go to church at all. Not even nominal Christians. Just People just don't even go. And laws are going to be passed that will cause us to examine our convictions. There's going to be a lot of pressure, and it's starting up, that is going to want to conform us to a godless society which is what we're living in now. We're going to have to pay a price in the coming days. And I think psalms like this will take on a whole new meaning. Psalm 12, the psalmist prays, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful man disappears from among the sons of man. I think that might be our prayer someday. Help, Lord. It's hard. It's tough. People are falling away because that's what it says in 2 Thessalonians. There's going to be a great falling away before the Lord comes back. That's what it says is going to happen. And that man of sin is going to have to be revealed. So it's always hard. That's our point here. It's hard to be in the minority and part of the losing cause. And it will take the grace of God to make it through what we have coming up. And so if you would, turn back to a scripture we haven't looked at in a while, please. Luke 21. Luke 21, verse 29, it says, And he spake, Jesus spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees, and when they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves. You watch the trees, he's saying, you can tell the time is approaching. And that's what the word is today. You should see the times approaching. That summer is now nigh at hand. And so likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know you that the kingdom of God is near at hand. Verse 32, Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass away, Till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And so Jesus, our Lord, tells us to take heed to ourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Selah. As a snare it'll come. They won't be looking for it. You're walking through the woods. Step on that trap. Bam! You weren't looking for it. That's what happens. That's what it's saying. He says in verse 36, Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to be able to stand before the Son of Man. And I think it'd be a good thing to talk, to pray, to intercede for your family. Let them know about these changing times. Talk to your children. Talk to them about the things they may be facing. Talk to them about Daniel and the three Hebrew boys and how because they purposed in their heart, that is how they made it through. We can't bury our head in the sand. 
We may be off the scene in 20 years. It may be 20 years when all this stuff starts hitting really hard. Our children will still be here. Do we care about them? We do care about them. I know you care about your kids. But I'm saying we need to think ahead. Don't we? Talk about the days of Noah because those days are here again. Jesus said, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. And so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. If we're not living in the days of Noah, I don't know what days we're living in. Go back and read Genesis 6. That's exactly what these days are like before the flood came. So go back to Daniel 7. So verses 1 to 8, it's a survey of the kingdoms of men, the climax, and that coming of the Antichrist. And so if that was all there was, if all we had was verses 1 to 8, that would be pretty disturbing. It'd be hopeless for me, right? But Daniel sees something else here. Look in verse 9. He says, after talking about that horn with the eyes of a man, a mouth speaking great things, suddenly he says in verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as a burning fire. The scene changes from all these nations, all these animals, all these terrifying beasts changes abruptly after verse 8. Because you would expect him to keep talking about this horn and what he's doing and all that other. But suddenly the scene changes and all of a sudden you're in a divine courtroom. That's what you have here. That's what we read. Many thrones are set there for judgment. And in the midst of those thrones, it said, sits the ancient of days, God our Father is sitting right there. And it says the Ancient of Days did sit. He's on the ultimate seat of authority. Way above any of these kingdoms of men. That's the point there, right? The throne room of God, the Ancient of Days. And so, you know, when we speak of ancient, and it talks about his hair being white, you know, it's not talking about some senile old man like that. That's not what it is. Ancient is talking about that he is eternal, the eternal God and the white garments that he has on and his hair like wool speaks of his absolute purity Amen. and that fire that comes forth that is around his wheels and around his throne. Fire always speaks of judgment. And that's what you're seeing there. So God is an eternal being. His throne is eternal. And it's contrasted with these nations, these beasts, and their thrones are fleeting these kingdoms, these great kingdoms, at the most, they last two to three hundred years. Babylon basically lasted 70 years judgment on Israel. And then another nation comes in. They don't last long. But God's throne, we're seeing here, it's eternal. The ancient of days. Amen. And it's a pure throne. And it's a throne of judgment and righteousness, unlike all these other nations. That's the contrast we're getting here. And around that throne, it says there are thousands upon thousands ministering to in his throne. we got to put ourselves in Daniel's shoes as he's seeing this. Daniel, he was a, a middle-aged man, had to seem like he's alone in Babylon 
Where's all the godly people? I'm taken out of my land. I've been in this pagan land, this pagan society. And God's saying, just be encouraged. There are thousands upon thousands before my throne. You're not alone. You know, Elijah complained, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And Elijah says, and I, even I, only am left. And God says, no, you're not. You're not the only one left. And we can't think we're the only ones left, right? We've got a room full of people for one thing. There's Christians everywhere. Christians that are serving the Lord, serving the Lord with a lot more persecution than we are. And God says, I've left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal and every mouth they haven't kissed up to him. He said, that's what the Lord told me. I got 7,000 people. You just don't know about them, but they're there. And that's what he's telling Dan. No, you're never alone. None of us are alone trusting God, serving the Lord. There's people doing that everywhere. And listen here, the judgment of this little horn takes place. All it takes from God is one fiery word and it's all over and that's what we have look in verse 10 a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him thousands upon thousands ministered unto him and ten thousands time ten thousand stood before him the judgment was set and the books were opened the court was seated the judgment was set. That's what it's saying. The court was seated. The books were open. And let me just ask you, can you imagine before the throne of almighty, eternal God with the fire and in his presence to have to stand before him on that day of judgment if you are a sinner? Oh, now is the time to get your accounts settled. All of us. We don't want to have them settled then. That would be an awesome and fearful day. But look what happens here in verse 11. Daniel hears the blasphemous words of this Antichrist and watches him. And as he does, he sees him literally being destroyed by this fire. And I beheld then because he's hearing this voice of the great words which the horn spake. And I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. He sees him and all these other rulers are destroyed by the breath of God, by the flame coming out of his throne. Our God reigns over all. And then look what we have here in verses 13 to 14. Under this heavenly throne comes one, it says, like unto the Son of Man. It says he comes in the clouds of heaven and he's presented to the Ancient of Days, comes before him. And so Daniel didn't know it, but we know it. Who is this? the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so this appearance in the clouds here, this is not him coming back in his second coming. It's not the second coming. It's his coronation when he ascended from the earth in the clouds. You remember Acts 1? What does it say in Acts 1? When Jesus told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, it says he was taken up and it said a cloud received him out of their sight. And that cloud took him, that's what we're reading here, right before the Ancient of Days. Look at verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. They usher him in to the presence of God the Father. 
it's saying. And look at verse 14. And there was given him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he has given. Given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So he's getting the kingdom that is not like the other ones, right? He's different than the other ones. He's like the son of man. He's not a beast. And his kingdom will never be destroyed, unlike all those other kingdoms that we saw. And that brings us to our third point today, that God's kingdom has begun and it will triumph in the end. So Jesus received, that's what we just read in verse 14. He received the kingdom at his ascension to the throne of God and he reigns today as king from heaven, doesn't he? The kingdom of God has begun. It is already here. But it's not yet in its fully manifested form, is it? We don't see it here on this earth. And that's why we pray, Thy kingdom come. It exists, but it is not here yet. And that is what we're praying for, aren't we? Praying for that kingdom to come. Now it's in the hearts of His people. And the Lord Jesus Christ reigns from heaven. So if you would, please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. So we could see that. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, it says this, For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that you visitest him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. This is speaking of Jesus. You have put all things under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he has left nothing that is not put under him. That's what happened in verse 14 of Daniel 7. All was given to him. All was put under him. But look what it says there at the end of verse 8. But now, presently, we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. So Jesus is the king. He has the rightful authority that everything, all power, is given to him in heaven and earth. But it is not yet manifested, is it? So we will still have to deal with evil forces in this world up to the end. We've got to see that. And one day that fact will happen. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And Daniel sees this vision take place. He is distressed. He's alarmed at what happens. Back to Daniel 7. Look in verse 15. It says, And I, Daniel, I was grieved. I was distressed in my spirit in the midst of my body and the visions of my head. They troubled me. He's alarmed. And he asked one of the angels, he said, could you just please interpret this vision to me? And he sums the whole thing up here in verses 17 and 18. And verse 17 says this. It says, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But, that's not the end of things. Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So they're going to rule this world, those four beasts, until the end of times, but they will not last. They don't have the final word. The saints of God, verse 18, is saying, will triumph in the end. 
And so he wants to know more. Daniel wants to know more about this fourth beast. And he asks the angel, he says, and I would know the truth of the fourth beast is what he says in verse 19. And he goes on to say, this is what I saw about that beast. He's great and terrible. And that horn that came up from the 10 and look at verse 21. Here's what he did. He says, and I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. But he says, until the ancient of days came. So it's not hopeless. It just appears that things were hopeless. Because there's that until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints, that's us, possessed the kingdom. And he goes on to describe the activities of the Antichrist. Look in verses 25 through 27. And he, the Antichrist, shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until the times, times, and the dividing of times. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And look at verse 27. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The people of the saints of the Most High, and whose kingdom... Now, it said that about the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom. Now he's saying that about the one given to the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And that's amazing. So we read about the glory and power and the dominion given to the Son of Man in verse 14, but yet from then on we just read it. Who does it say that dominion, that kingdom, that power is given to? The saints, us. Christians. So look, just as we shared in the death and the sin of the first Adam, when this second Adam came and he lived like man was meant to live and he had the dominion and perfect life of the perfect man, the second Adam, guess what? We get to partake in his glory, in his kingdom. I mean, that is just an amazing thing that God has done to us. Allow us to share in his eternal kingdom, ruling and reigning with him. And what a God we worship. And he came down there and took us sinners. We were part of the sea. The wicked, troubled always, and came down here and Jesus made us his brethren so that we could rule and reign with him. Listen to Hebrews 2. It says, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says this about us. Behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise took part of the same, that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He did all of that for us. Think about that. Not ashamed to call us who were his enemies, not ashamed to call us his brethren, and not only that, he is going to let us be join heirs with him and share in his kingdom. That is like, wait till you get there. You'll be a whole lot noisier than you are right now, I'm telling you. So that's the thing. So he wants us. Think about that. He wants us to reign with him. 
So we don't have a kingdom apart from our king, and the king doesn't want to reign apart from us, his servants, his brethren. Amen. So let me end this with four lessons to learn from this chapter that we've gone through. And here's one thing we need to keep in mind. The first thing is there is going to be evil. We're seeing this clearly, don't we? There's going to be evil and suffering until the Lord returns. In fact, it's only going to intensify is what we've read there, like birth pangs. So listen, and here's what we need to remember too. Just because we live in peace here in America doesn't mean we don't have brothers and sisters that are suffering severely in other countries. And we need to pray for them. And we do that. We need to remember them. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 13 to do that. We do that every week at prayer meeting now. Pray for our persecuted brothers. We could probably even pray longer for them. But we also need to pray for our children and others that are going to experience this persecution in the future. So we shouldn't be like Hezekiah. You know, remember Hezekiah? You know, the Lord said, well, I'm not going to bring that judgment in your day. I'm going to bring it in the future. And he's like, well, as long as it isn't in my day, that's fine with me. That shouldn't be our heart. Our heart should be like Daniel's. Look at what Daniel says here in verse 28. He sees all this. He sees that this is future. He sees it's God's people suffering in the future. But he doesn't be like, oh, well, what's that to me? No, he's got a heart. Look what he says. Verse 28, hitherto is the end of the matter. And he says, as for me, Daniel... My, whatever that is, cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Oh, he's bothered by that. He sees what this fourth beast is going to do to God's people. He's like, could you clarify that to me? They're going to wear out the saints of the Most High. It concerns him. It's a matter of prayer for him. He was a man of prayer. And we see what's coming, don't we? It should be a concern for us, for not only other people in the world that are suffering, but also for future generations that are sitting right here. Little babies that are being born, young children that are growing up. It's a concern. It should be a concern and a burden for us. It really should be. And the second thing we can get out of this is the kingdom of God is a kingdom of suffering. Through much tribulation will enter the kingdom of heaven. And when Paul said that, he said that to encourage Christians in the faith. And so here's the thing. We're seeing from this that he's wearing out the saints of the Most High. The forces of darkness are going to be coming at us. They're limited, but they're going to do everything they can to get every single Christian in this room to quit. That's what they're after. That's what's going to happen except by the grace of God. And so we have to be determined by the grace of God to take the kingdom by force and to stand. And that is going to involve suffering in a lot of ways. Not just necessarily physically, somebody hacking your head off or beating you. There's other ways of suffering that can be just as intense. What are we seeing in this chapter? It will be worth it. Isn't that what he's saying? Oh, man, they're not going to ultimately triumph. We stay faithful. Let him wear us out. Because we will reign in the end. That's what it says. Romans 8, we've been in there. It says, we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And here's where Paul says it's worth it. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So getting back to our little political situation we have here on a new president and who knows what's going to happen and who knows which way the bombs are going to be flying, if any, who knows. What do we see from this? We shouldn't be focusing on the political crises of the world. 
What should we be focusing on? What Daniel was focusing on in verse 14 through 19, right? The throne of God, the ancient of days, the one that has been there, his throne is eternal. The one that is pure and just and has judgment in his hand and can cut off that Antichrist or anybody that's troubling us, no problem. That's where our focus needs to be. The eternal, pure, ancient of days that sits and reigns. Our God reigns, as the song goes. And so what does that tell us? Our goal should not be the kingdoms of this world. America is not a kingdom of God. It is not. It's no different than the other beast. But in saying that, we should pray for our leaders and we should strive to be good citizens and be thankful for where he has given us to live. So I'm not saying any of that. Don't be disrespectful to the government. That's not what the Bible teaches in any sense of the word or our leaders. But we need to remember this. Our citizenship is where? That's what it says. Philippians, doesn't it? And Jesus reigns in our lives and he reigns now. He's reigning now and he is reigning in our lives. And we now are part of his kingdom. We are. And that's where our allegiance lies, doesn't it? Thy kingdom come. Because that's the kingdom that we're a part of. And we're looking forward to that, aren't we? Well, let's close by reading verses 13 to 14. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And here's what he was given. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be restored. Amen? Amen. And he's given that to us to enjoy with him. What a blessing. What a privilege. Amen? Amen. Who cares about the kingdoms of this world when we have that? Amen. Amen. That's where our hope lies. Heavenly Father, I ask in these days to come that you'll help to remind us when we get caught up into things going around in this world and the turmoil and the terrorism that you reign, you are the ancient of days and that your kingdom is the kingdom that we are a part of. We won't be taken out of that kingdom and it's an everlasting kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And that is where our faith is and that is where our hope is. And we look forward to your coming, Lord, and we pray thy kingdom come. That is our prayer as a church. And I just ask that you'll make all of that real to us today, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.